You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Before we begin, I want to thank my newest patrons, Brad Ovices and Stephen. Thanks so much for your support. Patrons of the show get access to an ad-free feed through Patreon with an RSS link that can be pasted into most podcast apps. And in that feed, they get access to teasers and patron-exclusive blindside mini-episodes, as well as early episode release at higher tiers. Pledge support today at patreon.com slash historicalblindness for as little as a dollar a month. And support the show if you love it. Thanks again. On to the show. Welcome to Historical Blindness. I'll be leading this expedition into a far-off land for the sole purpose of proving a myth is real. If I fail, though, I wouldn't say it necessarily proves it is a myth. We can always find further justification for our delusions. In this final installment of my series on the occult influence on Nazism, I am finally getting to the stereotype of the Nazis as searchers after mystical artifacts. This, of course, is why I have always found Nazi occultism to be so very fascinating. As a boy in the 1980s, there were no movies I loved more than the Indiana Jones films. I had myself a fedora and whip and I used to stand in my front yard trying to wrap it securely around a tree limb. So I grew up under the assumption that Hitler was obsessed with finding relics of power, like the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail. As I matured and learned more about who Nazis were, I thought that if those jackbooted boogeymen were real, then perhaps those powerful talismans were also real, a notion my Sunday school teachers were all too happy to reinforce. So, just as I tried to wrap that whip around that branch, I tried to wrap my head around the idea that Judeo-Christian artifacts imbued with God's magical power might somehow aid in evil men's plans of world domination and genocide. A tale like Ravenscroft's about the Spear of Destiny would have drawn me in and convinced me entirely, as it has so many others. But returning to this topic with a more critical perspective and finding legends like Ravenscroft's to be entirely implausible and impossible to credit, I had been ready to accept that Nazis weren't the archaeologists of the weird that Raiders and Last Crusade made them out to be. Imagine my surprise, then, when through my research, as the story of the neo-pagan and occult notions behind Nazism unfolded to me, I discovered that in many ways, this legend was entirely true. Thanks for listening to Nazi Occultism, Part 3, The Hunt for a Hyperborean Heritage. Before I continue, for the third and final time, 
If you're listening to this series because you are a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist and you want to better understand the mythology spread by Nazis, listen closely to what I have to say about how there's no evidence for any of this, about the consensus among historians that these are not only myths, but disprovable and insidious. And lastly, think closely about the assumptions you make regarding people who are different from yourself. Hate makes you miserable. Love and tolerance will improve your life and the world. Long before the rise of the Nazi party, the development of the myth of an Aryan race that came from some mysterious northern homeland and spread southward over the world, propagating their Indo-European language, led to the identification of the imagined Aryan race with certain lost civilization myths. It was these myths that drove Reichsfuhrer Heinrich Himmler, the dark pontiff of the SS Death's Head cult and his Archbishop Karl Maria Willigott, to organize and bankroll numerous pseudoscientific archaeological and anthropological expeditions. Essentially, their interest in the ancient past extended only as far as proving their occult theories about their racial heritage. And that meant seeking to prove the existence of places long held by empirical historiography to be mere myth. One of these places was Atlantis the history of whose myth is so rich and Byzantine that I could not hope to do it justice in one short passage here. Suffice to say, then, that Atlantis was a mythical mid-Atlantic lost continent and civilization that originated in an allegorical story told by Plato. I encourage you to listen to Sebastian Major's coverage of Atlantis in Our Fake History for a better understanding of the myth. What is relevant here is that, to some, the idea arose that Atlantis could have been the homeland of the Aryans, even though a mid-Atlantic continent could not be considered as being to the north of Europe. The reason for the connection is the Oralinda book, which I covered in my last patron-exclusive Blindside episode. This seemingly ancient Frisian text, believed to have been written in a runic script, told the tale of a northern European Nordic civilization descended from Atlanteans that would go on to be the progenitor of the Germans and basically all white Europeans. Despite the fact that after the book came to light in the late 19th century, it was conclusively proven to be a forgery and hoax, its ideas were so appealing to German believers in the Aryan myth that in 1933, a Volkish pseudo-scholar named Hermann Wirth published a translation of it. This version so caught the imagination of Heinrich Himmler that in 1935, he recruited Hermann Wirth to be the head of his newly formed Study Society for Primordial Intellectual History and German Ancestral Heritage, later renamed Research and Teaching Community for Ancestral Heritage, Das Annenerbe for short a word ostensibly meaning ancestral heritage, but which, amusingly, is translated by Google as quote-unquote guest heritage, as in heritage about which one is only guessing. For years, until the beginning of World War II, the Ananerba would devote much time and research to attempting to prove the Oralinda book genuine, at which task, of course, they failed. 
But this was far from the sole focus of the Ananerba. For to begin with, the Atlantis of the Uralinda was not the only mythical land believed to have been the Aryan origin place. One purveyor of myths about lost civilizations who had tremendous influence on Nazi occult pseudo-history was Madame Helena Blavatsky and her Theosophical Society, whose contributions to Ariosophy I've already discussed. In her 1888 book, The Secret Doctrine, she outlined her cosmogony, or version of the origin of the universe, as well as her claims about anthropogenesis, the origins of mankind. By her reckoning, there had been multiple ages during which different root races of mankind had seen their rise and fall on continents now lost to time. She claimed that mankind as we knew it, the Aryans, or fifth race, were descended from the fourth race, Atlanteans, a race of giants with psychic powers. The Atlanteans, in turn, before being nearly wiped out by the sinking of their continent, had been descended from the third race, who had lived in the lost southern civilization of Lemuria, and before them had been the second race, who lived in Hyperborea, near the North Pole, and so on. Hyperborea, meaning, quote, beyond the north wind, end quote, had been a mythical place since time immemorial. The earliest surviving mention of it was in Herodotus, who indicated other now lost records of the continent, such as in a lost work of Homer's. Poets, philosophers, and geographers of antiquity all had their own ideas about the location of Hyperborea. It was a northerly location, as the very name suggested, and the myth tells us it was beyond the Riphean Mountains, but no one was quite certain of those mountains' location. Despite what you might find written about it online, none thought of it as an Arctic or polar island. Diodorus Siculus, Pliny the Elder, and Pomponius Mela described Hyperborea as a utopian paradise, which of course doesn't square well with the Arctic's less-than-temperate climate. Actually, most scholars believe the myth of Hyperborea may represent evidence of Greek contact with Celts in Britain. French occultist Antoine Fabre d'Olivet appears to be the first to propose the Arctic North as the location of Hyperborea and the origin of the quote-unquote white race and from there it passed through the writings of countless occultists, who, like Blavatsky, are an incestuous group, metaphorically, in that they seem to have little qualm about repeating claims, source unseen, and even plagiarizing lengthy passages. The idea of Hyperborea being located at the farthest point northward, beyond the Arctic Circle, seems to have come from a conflation of that lost civilization with another mythical northerly island, Ultima Thule. Like Hyperborea, the myth of Ultima Thule originated in antiquity, and its location was likewise debated by many of the same names, such as Strabo, Pliny the Elder, Pomponius Mela, and Claudius Ptolemy. However, Thule had a much stronger claim to actually be a land in the Arctic North. 
It was first written about during the time of Alexander the Great's conquests by Pythias of Massilia, a mariner exploring the Atlantic. Only a few quotations of Pythias's writings have survived, but enough that we know he described Thule as, quote, the place where the sun sets, for it happened that in these parts the night becomes extremely short, sometimes two, sometimes three hours long, so that the sun rises a short while after sunset, end quote. The myth of Ultima Thule, this ultimate as in utmost or farthest island, presents the greatest evidence that mankind indeed penetrated the Arctic Circle in ancient times, for it is a clear description of the midnight sun phenomenon now known to occur there. However, even some geographers in antiquity doubted Pythias, such as Strabo, who called him a quote-unquote arch falsifier. Doubt is understandable, for just as Hyperborea was said to be icebound, yet to enjoy a comfortable climate, so Ultima Thule was described by some, such as Geoffrey of Monmouth, to experience, quote, an eternal spring, green throughout seasons, end quote. Among those who gave him credence, Ultima Thule's location was debated with just as much verve. It was variously seen as being somewhere northwest of England, then to the northeast, then far out west into the Atlantic, and once, a confusion of names had some thinking it was in the Persian Gulf. Today, most believe that if it ever existed, it was likely a Shetland Island or Iceland whose evergreens would go a long way toward explaining claims about its year-round greenery. Of its inhabitants, however, little was claimed beyond them being barbarians, and later that they enjoyed a perfect utopian society. In another indication that myths about Hyperborea have become confused with myths about Ultima Thule over the years, we see Pomponius Mela state that Hyperboreans did not die, but rather, quote-unquote, laughingly, cast themselves into the sea, quote, when sufficiency of living has come upon them, end quote. While in the 15th century English encyclopedia The Mirror of the World, it is claimed that the Thulians only die, quote, when they've been so old and feeble that they had rather die than live, end quote. Just as occultists took the myth of Hyperborea and asserted its connection to their notions of racial descent, so German Ariosophists took the myth of Ultima Thule and claimed it as part and parcel of their Aryan myth. Among these, of course, were the members of the aforementioned Thule Gesellschaft, or Thule Society. The Thule Society did not necessarily hold fast to the notion that a green and verdant land that enjoyed a perpetual spring had ever existed at the North Pole, but they thought, perhaps, it could have existed beneath it and so throughout their literature can be seen references to Hohlweltlehre, or hollow earth theory. The idea that the earth might be hollow and that conditions beneath the surface might possibly support life was not exactly new. The astronomer and explorer Edmund Halley, for example, had developed a detailed theory about it. I spoke of this briefly last year in my discussion of the green children of Woolpit, 
and I did a guest appearance on an episode of the podcast The Conspirators with host and friend of the show Nate Hale, in which we spoke all about it. I encourage you to go listen to those episodes for more on the notion of the hollow earth. Here, what is most germane to mention is that the Thule Society, along with the other proponents of the hollow earth theory, looked to Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth as inspiration, which featured a German scholar deciphering the ancient rune script of a Nordic saga to discover the hidden entrance to the inner realms of the earth in Iceland. One imagines the members of the Thule Society finding this fiction not only plausible, but almost a revelation, perhaps theorizing that Verne had some occult knowledge that they might uncover themselves with further research. Other novels featuring a civilization inside a hollow earth that they might have taken inspiration from include the Pellucidar novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs and the satirical utopian novel the Coming Race by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Indeed, Bulwer-Lytton's novel, which revolved around a race of subterranean superbeings called the Virilia, was accepted by numerous occultists, including many of Blavatsky's theosophists, as revealing some hidden truth about the world. And in the 1930s, Willie Ley, a German rocket scientist who defected to America and wrote about Nazi pseudoscience, offered the supposed revelation that another secret German society called the Society for Truth existed for the sole purpose of discovering and harnessing Vril, the mysterious force wielded by Bulwer-Lytton's hollow earth dwellers. This has turned Bulwer-Lytton's fiction into a touchstone for Aryan theorists and enthusiasts of occult Nazi myths ever since, resulting in legends of Vril-powered Nazi UFOs, of course. Ironically, the only other important literary legacy of Edward Bulwer-Lytton has to do with bad writing, for he famously coined the ultimate cliché, it was a dark and stormy night. Now for a brief intermission. Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We are the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. What we do every week is we tell you mostly paranormal stories, and then we throw in a couple of uh, unsolved mysteries, maybe a little bit of true crime if it's creepy enough. And the beauty of this is that Tracy doesn't know the show, correct? This is correct. Never do. So then what happens when you don't know the show... I'm just as surprised as anybody else is. And that's the beauty of what our show is. We basically get the same reactions out of Tracy as what the listener at home is getting. And I think that's been a success to our show so far. Yeah, I think it works. We also use our show to promote mental health awareness and suicide awareness every show. So we get the added bonus of trying to help people out while you get to listen to paranormal shows. Amen. And that's what's important to us. So please subscribe to Hillbilly Horror Stories wherever you listen to your other podcasts. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, back to the show. Whether or not the hollow earth theory was given credence by a great many Nazis or only a few, it is evident that among Nazis and occultists in Germany at the time, eccentric conceptions of how the earth was formed seem to have been prevalent. One such theory proposed by Dr. Cyrus Reed Teed after a series of surveys he completed in 1890s Florida suggested that the earth was concave some researchers have argued that both Hitler and Himmler had become convinced of this quote-unquote cellular cosmogony, as it was called, which had seen a resurgence in the weird atmosphere of early 20th century Germany. Essentially, this theory holds that there is a hollow earth, and we are on its concave inner surface, looking up at a gaseous blue cloud lit by a small sun on the other side of which could possibly be seen the far side of the world. Supposedly, Hitler sent a radar expert to the Baltic Sea to aim his radar equipment into the sky at a certain angle in hopes of tracking the British fleet in the Atlantic. While this theory and projects undertaken based on it might seem ridiculous, another, no less absurd, might even make it seem sensible by comparison. It seems that Himmler and Hitler both also became enamored of Welteislehre, or world ice theory, the brainchild of one Hans Horbiger, an engineer and inventor. He seems to have been a man of science until one day, while gazing at the moon, he claimed to have had an epiphany, almost like the visions of Guido von Liszt, Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, and Karl Maria Villegat, that all planets were composed of ice and that ice was the basic building block of all things, making the Milky Way not a galaxy of stars, but a vast swath of icebergs. In 1912, he published his theory of glacial cosmogony, and some elements of it were actually prescient. 
For example, he suggested that the universe had begun in an explosion like the Big Bang. Other aspects of his theory, however, definitely show it to be a product of the Austro-German revival of occultism and esotericism at the time, such as that the ancient and superior races of man had arrived on Earth when moons of ice had crashed into it, and that impacts of these sorts had further resulted in the sinking of Atlantis and in Noah's flood. Particularly appealing to Ariosophists, and specifically to Heinrich Himmler, was this notion of a master race originating from an icy world. For this struck his ear as very like the myth of Ultima Thule, being the frozen homeland of the Aryan master race. Much of the work of Himmler's Anenerba was directed toward finding evidence to support these various Ariosophist pet theories of anthropogenesis and cosmogenesis. But of course, by the time the Second World War came around, when Himmler and his Death's Head cult took on far more horrific tasks and put their academic undertakings on hold, they had nothing to show for their research. One should attribute this to the fact they were seeking evidence of something that only existed in their minds, though, and not to any lack of effort on their part. In search of archaeological proof of German superiority and lost Aryan civilizations, the Anenerba sent teams all over the world. In order to gather more Nordic folklore to pour over, teams visited Scandinavia in 1935, recorded the traditional songs of pagan forest dwellers, and met with a legendary sorceress named Miranaku. Perceived similarities between prehistoric petroglyphs and runes led to numerous expeditions to Sweden, the Baltic Sea, and Italy, and the theory that Aryan paganism was the progenitor of all Middle Eastern religions led to an expedition to Iraq to study the ancient sites of Babylon. The Ananerba truly were the villainous archaeologists portrayed in Raiders of the Lost Ark, exploring prehistoric Celtic settlements close to home in the Black Forest and planning expeditions as far afield as Iceland where they hoped to study the culture for any echoes of their mythological Ultima Thule and the Aryan race, and Bolivia and Peru, where they believed they saw parallels between the ancient Incans and Nordic culture. Perhaps the most far-flung operation ever taken on by the Anenerba was their mission to Tibet in hopes of finding there the source of their imagined master race. There was a theory at the time that plant and animal life had all come from a common source up in the Himalayas, an idea that resonated well with Ariosophist notions of a root or master race of human beings coming from some icy realm. Tibet wasn't exactly to the north of Europe, but there was another legend of the so-called Mountain of Tongues, called Jabal al-Alsina by medieval Arab geographers who claimed it was the birthplace of Indo-European languages. While this mythical mountain had long been supposed to be in the Caucasus, Himmler thought that perhaps the tales had been mistaken and it might be in the Himalayas. Moreover, the mad mystic Karl Villigat was apparently very interested in stories he'd heard about Tibetan women keeping magical stones in their vaginas. So off they sent a team to Tibet, where after an arduous seven-month journey, 
they eventually reached the forbidden capital city of Lhasa and, of course, found no sign of any blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryans. True to the image of Nazi archaeologists in Raiders and the Last Crusade, though, the Ananerba did more than sift around in ruins and squint at glyphs. They were on the lookout for artifacts of legend. Perhaps the earliest such artifact to interest Himmler and Villegat was the Irmansul, a great pillar said to be sacred to the pagan Saxons that legend says was destroyed by Charlemagne. Volkish neo-pagans associated the Irmansul with Yggdrasil, the world tree of Nordic mythology, and saw parallels to the object in numerous world religions, such as Christianity's tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, the sacred Hindu fig tree, the Ashvasta, and the Bodhi tree, under which the Buddha attained enlightenment. Volkish pseudo-scholars like Karl Maria Villegat believed that the Irmansul was none other than the Externsteine, a formation of natural sandstone pillars in the Rhineland that Roman historian Tacitus had written about as the Pillars of Hercules. At this site are a number of 12th century Christian carvings, the most prominent of which depicts Christ's descent from the cross. But Karl Maria Villegat and other neo-pagans believed that long before these carvings were made, it had been a pagan place of worship and appreciated it as such coaxing Himmler and other SS officers to make pilgrimages out to the site. In fact, Himmler came to be so preoccupied by it that before he established the Ananerba, he established a precursor organization called the Externsteine Foundation, whose focus was to study the stone outcropping he and Villegat believed was the Irmansul. In those early years, the madman Villegat was far more influential in the archaeological undertakings of the SS, mounting expeditions of his own to places where he believed there to be intersections of quote-unquote energy lines, like planetary chakra points or ley lines, and digging up stone ruins from which he felt quote-unquote vibrations. While the story of Hitler's obsession with taking possession of the Spear of Destiny may be dubious, there are plenty of real stories involving the Ananerba seeking out and sometimes snatching historical artifacts. The war put one plan on hold to photograph the Behistun inscription carved into a mountainside in Iran using a balloon-mounted camera. But as the Reich invaded other countries, the chance to loot relics was always seized on by the Ananerba. They took possession of Gothic artifacts, such as the Vite Stoss altarpiece and the Crown of Crimea, and they took great interest in the Bayeux Tapestry upon invading France, believing it offered evidence supporting the notion of Germanic superiority. And the one probably mythical, supposedly magical artifact that actually did seem to cast a spell over Himmler and his black-clad archaeologists was the Holy Grail of Legend. Spielberg and Lucas seem to have gotten this one spot on. Ever since Wagner based his opera Parzival on the 13th century story of Percival, the knight of King Arthur's Round Table, who quested after the Holy Grail, Germans and neo-pagan occultists had taken great interest in Grail mythology. As mentioned in the last episode, 
entire reading rooms at Vuvelsberg had been dedicated by Himmler to the study of Arthurian legend and the mythos of the Holy Grail, and some have said he envisioned the castle as a kind of twisted Camelot with an almost 15,000 square foot dining hall equivalent to Arthur's round table. And within the ranks of the Ananerba was a slick-haired, weaselly man named Otto Ron, who, like a quintessential Indiana Jones villain, had been obsessed with the Grail all his life, believing the Gnostic French Cathar sect, wiped out in a Catholic crusade in 1244, had actually secreted the Grail away somewhere in the Languedoc region of western France. If you're thinking that this sounds an awful lot like Holy Blood Holy Grail or the Da Vinci Code, you're absolutely right. These kinds of conspiracy theories of hidden history are endlessly recycled. Like many who would come after him, he searched the castle at Montsegur and various remote caves throughout the Pyrenees Mountains, finding nothing more concrete than material for a 1933 book. Himmler, it turned out, was a fan of his writings, gave Ron a black uniform and an impressive rank, and bankrolled his grail quest. But Otto Ron was no Parzival, and only ever produced some further writings about his search. In the end, it may seem surprising that Himmler and the Ananerba's undertakings live on in legend, for they never turned up anything supportive of their pseudo-historical views, nor is there any evidence they ever discovered a mythical artifact and proved it to be true. The most they ever accomplished was turning up some remains or artifacts of passing historical interest, something it may have been hard not to do when sifting around through prehistoric sites. But enduring legends of Nazi survival remain to tantalize us. These unsupported and fantastical speculations suggest that perhaps the Nazis did discover objects of power or the secret places of the earth and kept their discoveries a secret establishing what some call a breakaway civilization, an idea encouraged by the fact that some Nazis did escape Germany and take refuge across the world in South America. But these theories go further. They claim that it is all too suspect that entrances to the Hollow Earth were said to be located in Tibet and Antarctica, and the Germans mounted expeditions to both those places. The Tibet expedition I have already discussed. As for Antarctica, the Nazis sent one Captain Alfred Richer there in 1938 to claim 230,000 square miles in the name of Germany. If you dare visit the underbelly of internet conspiracy and paranormal pseudo-history websites, you'll find it said that clearly the Nazis found a path to the hollow earth, harnessed the power of Vril, and used it to found a new underground society and power their flying saucers. The problem is, there are far simpler explanations and more reasonable conclusions. The Tibet expedition was well documented, with surviving film and photographs, and it is apparent that the Nazi pseudo-anthropologists who undertook it did little more than place calipers on the heads of everyone they encountered and record their craniometric data. There is no indication that they did any sort of cave exploration or excavation. As for the Antarctic mission of Captain Richer, it was a territorial claim, pure and simple. Many nations had sent similar teams to the South Pole before them, including Norway, France, Britain, 
and the U.S., whose Admiral Richard Byrd had famously flown over it. It was only because of the Nazis' aggression and the clear rumblings of war that Richard's expedition raised eyebrows. But legend always finds a way to grow. Two years after the Reich fell, Admiral Byrd organized a task force of 13 ships, 33 aircraft, and nearly 5,000 men, and went back to Antarctica in Operation High Jump, with a mission of training personnel in cold conditions, gathering information, and extending sovereignty. Conspiracy theorists, however, will tell you that it was a military operation to attack a secret Nazi UFO base. With their customary lack of supporting evidence, they won't even try to prove their claims, looking instead to skeptics to somehow prove them wrong. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I want to thank my resolute core of archaeologists, my partner patrons, Marina, Joe, Jacob, Robert, Diane, and David. Thank you so much for digging into the dirty past with me. Some music on this episode was provided by film composer Alex Kish. Check out his work at alexkishmusic.com. While you're online, visit the blog at historicalblindness.com to see images and find links to further reading and citations for academic sources. You can also find book recommendations for almost every episode topic on the Books tab, as well as a link to my own book, Manuscript Found, a historical novel about the composition of the Book of Mormon, which has a great many parallels to the Oralinda hoax, which I mentioned on this episode. So check it out. If you liked the episode or are a fan of the show, give it a rating and review wherever you can, especially iTunes, and follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, Remember that the most extraordinary claims about the past require the most extraordinary evidence, and the burden of proof must be on those who make these claims, not on those who point out they are not supported. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.